Today is what we call Palm Sunday, and I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We've been working through 2 Corinthians for the past seven, eight months, it seems, but we're taking a a little hiatus um, this week and next week. Today we're going to look at the day and event that kicked off and started what is undoubtedly the seven most pivotal days in human history. And when we think about pivotal days in in history, um, I'm not sure if you have picked up on this or not. There's a lot of stuff going on politically. Have you tuned into that at all? Okay, just just curious. Interesting developments on the political front, as we would say, the forces of the Donald and Uncle Bernie and clashing and fights and protests and arguments and arrests and near riots and bickering. And obviously, this, we know that this is just a metaphor for a clash of world views as, as people are, are animated by things that spur their hearts, depending on what side of the aisle they gravitate to, whether it's college education and loans and health care or um, the issue of crime and immigration and national defense. And we're not going to wade into all of those waters except to say this. For as much as there is an animated, often violent clash of worldviews going on, There is something, isn't there, that is similar, that unites all of these things, that sort of brings together a lot of our cultural angst. And I I would phrase it this way, folks, there is a real profound disillusionment going on culturally. And it expresses itself in different ways, and and it shows up in different forms depending on what side of the ideological wall that you're on, but if you want to boil it right down to it, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of despair, there's a lot of broken dreams, there's a lot of disillusionment that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Is, is, is this what we got? Is this all we have? Who is going to come and fix this cultural mess that we are in? And any time that sort of spirit pervades a culture or the heart of a people, it leaves them particularly susceptible to what um, Ross Dutaw, who writes for the New York Times, calls the theology of the strongman. And the theology of the strongman is simply this. It's very simple. It is our, our desperate cultural belief that there is someone, anyone, some person, some thing, some entity out there who is going to fix all of this, who's going to tidy it up, sweep it up, clean it up, put a bow on top of it, and lead us from where we are to where we want to go. Now, if you understand that, and that resonates on any level for you, then you can understand a little bit about what's going on in our text this morning in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. You know, Israel was looking 
for a strong man. Were you waiting for me to tell you who to vote for? Just wait. Come back, okay? Just write it in. Throw your vote away. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, same thing 2,000 years ago. Israel was looking for a strong man. Someone to rescue them from the mess that they were in. And we think we're culturally in a mess. Guys, they were in a deep mess. You know, 400 years had passed since the, the people of Israel had been exiled to the countries of the world in Babylon and beyond. And they had returned from these distant lands to repopulate Israel only, and imagine this, imagine being evicted from your home and, been, and then, a, and then a, a century later brought back to your home, but now you're slaves in your own homeland. That was the Israelites. They had been passed down like a discarded rag from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome, and the Romans were their new masters, and they had had 400 years of cultural captivity. Can you imagine what that was like? Guys, we have no idea. We just have, we have no idea. It doesn't make our issues or problems any less serious. It was just, we're, we're, we're in another playing field here. But the Israelites were not just 400 years in captivity in their own home. There was also had been 400 years of silence. You see, the, the Old Testament had shut its pages at the end of Chronicles with Israel being sent off into exile and its last king disappearing somewhere in the land of Babylon. And since that time, there were no visions, there were no prophets, there was no word from the Lord, there was nothing. And you can imagine the state of angst and turmoil that they were sort of percolating in. Until, until... This guy in the desert shows up named John the Baptist, and he starts baptizing, and he starts preparing the way for Jesus, and Jesus comes on the scene, and for, for these three years that Jesus had his public ministry, nothing was the same. He went around healing. He went around doing supernatural works and signs and wonders, and everyone wanted to know, is this the guy? Is he our Messiah? Is he our strong man? Is he the guy that's finally going to clean up this mess that we find ourselves in? And as we get ready to jump into this passage, may I make an observation about how I think the theology of the strong man has impacted us, not politically. I think that's easy to see. Okay? That, those are easy stones to throw. But how has the theology of the strong man impacted you and me in our personal lives? See, see, we can look at areas of our life, whether they're it's our marriage, or our children, or our job, or our career, our vocation, our health, and we can feel those very same feelings of desperateness, anxiety, anger, disillusionment, and say, Lord, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not what I signed up for. This is, is this what my best life now looks like? Because it, it is profoundly discouraging and even despairing. 
Well, if that at all resonates with you, I think this passage will speak to us as we point the way to the true mission of Jesus Christ and why he came. John 12, 9 through verse 19. We'll flash the text up here on the screen for you. Now, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that there what I'm sorry, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Horror. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to a hard truth in this text this morning. And it's simply this. We want you to come and fix things. We want you to fix the messes in our world and in our lives. But actually, you had a higher priority. You had a different agenda. You came to do something far more significant and impactful. And that was to fix what's going on in the inside of our hearts. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we unpack this text today. In your name we pray, amen. Three points this morning, pretty simple. The what, the why, and the how, okay? The what, and the why, and the how. The what, we're going to just unpack this text and talk about what is going on, just kind of, kind of exposit it, explain it. We're going to talk about the why. Why does such an audacious, spectacular, brilliant beginning of the week end in a crucifixion. How in the world do we get from here to here? And then finally, the how. How does this apply? How did this speak to the own issues of disillusionment and fear and anger in our own lives? So let's look at the what. Let's go back to the text. Guys, the scene opens here. John says, at Passover, which is the supreme Jewish holiday. And it was here that all Israel would literally beat a path to Jerusalem. And they were here celebrating and had been doing for some thousand years their liberation from Egypt. And they're passing over the Red Sea. And so they would come and for seven days they would celebrate and sacrifice and worship and remember all that God had done, and would look forward expectantly to all that God would do in the future. Now, it's hard to paint a picture of just exactly what this would be like sociologically, 
Okay, so I did a little research. The land area of Jerusalem at that time was about 425 acres. And you may say, how much? I don't, I don't have a reference point for that. Guys, the FSU campus downtown is about 425 acres. Did you know this? Coincidentally. I didn't. I found out this was the case. Okay. Now, before you get too excited about that comparison, remember, Jerusalem was burned to the ground for its great wickedness. Okay, I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> just, 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 uh, it's a freebie. Okay. But now, think about, seriously, 425 acres... On game day, FSU, 85,000 to 90,000 people just, and more, obviously, cram themselves into this little area, and you know how chaotic okay, that is, and crazy that is. It is estimated by Josephus and others that up to 2 to 3 million Jews came to Jerusalem during Passover. 2 to 3 million and you're like, how is that possible? It, it wasn't, really, <laughs> in the sense that people were everywhere, hanging on trees, living with relatives, living on the side of the road, in inns, staying outside the, the city gates. It was crowded, obviously. It was hot. And this Passover was particularly pregnant with expectation, because they weren't just remembering the deliverance that they had some thousand years ago, 1,500 years ago from the Egyptians and crossing the Red Sea. They were eagerly awaiting a new deliverance because life in the Roman Empire was grim. Okay? Forget all the, 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 the glamour movies of, of Gladiator and all those things. This was a hard, treacherous, brutal Life and they were looking for their strong man. And and the way that this would happen is that they would, on their way up to Jerusalem, they would sing what we have in our Psalms, which are called Psalms of Ascent. And they would sing these things, and they're all about the Messiah and how God would deliver them and God would save them. And so you can see, like, sort of this cauldron (laughs) of, of craziness that sort of swirling around the Passover season, except this year was particularly so because something had happened. Not only had Jesus for three years been doing his miracles around Galilee and the greater Israelite area, but he had performed what was probably the greatest miracle since the parting of the Red Sea itself, he had raised a man from the dead. Okay? Now, now understand something. Jesus had done a lot of miracles. Okay? He had done a lot of amazing things. He had fed the 5,000 from a loaf and fishes. He had healed multitudes. He had taken water and turned it into wine. But make no mistake, there was no miracle to top this miracle. See, Jesus had raised people from the dead before, remember, but those were easily explained away. Those were in some backwater in Galilee. And for somebody who was sick, and they probably never even died, but Lazarus, this was totally different. We know know from John chapter 11, Lazarus had been sick, and now he had been dead four days. Four days. And Jesus had called him from the tomb, and Jesus had hung out with Lazarus and his family, and he He was anointed in Bethany, and 
There was no keeping this under wraps. So look at the text in verse 12. Look what it says. It says, you have those who were coming into Jerusalem, verse 12 tells us. It says, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. These were people probably in the Galilean peasants who had witnessed most of Jesus' miracles, or many of them, in the surrounding countryside, and they heard, oh my goodness, can you believe it? Jesus is at the Passover. Oh no, we've never known when Jesus has been at the Passover before. That's a big deal. Jesus has come to do something unique and awesome, and so there's this excitement. Look at verse 17. Okay, verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. In other words, there was a whole host of people that lived near Jerusalem, lived in Bethany, and, when, and they had witnessed this miracle and this resurrection, and they were coming in along with the other pilgrims saying, yes, we know you know Jesus, but guess what? Listen to what he just did. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and you had all these people flocking to Jerusalem to see this dead man who had become alive. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he raised Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Okay? And the reason why the crowd went to meet him. So there's another group of people. Okay, you get this idea of coming out of Jerusalem. They've gotten the word, and all of them converge in one giant scrum. I'm not sure what sport that is. Rugby? Something. Anyway, whatever. A mess. Okay? Thousands. Okay? It was a cauldron of chaos. And what were they doing? Look at what the text says they were doing. They were doing two things. And these are incredibly significant. We need to understand what they were doing so we understand why they were doing it. They were waving and they were shouting. Okay? So verse 13, it says they were waving Branches of palm trees. That's why we call the triumphal entry, or this Sunday, Palm Sunday, obviously. Palm, palm fronds were a sign of, of, a cultural sign of victory, of the conquering warrior. And so when kings would come and they would win and, and vanquish their foe on the battlefield and they would ride into Rome or whatever, people would wave palm fronds. And by the way, we don't have time to go there. Revelation 7, 9 says that when Jesus comes back one day, what are, we, what are people going to be waving? Palms. Okay? So it, it said something that's significant. This is our guy. This is our king. He is, he is coming to make things right. But they were doing a second thing. They were, it says, shouting and exclaiming. Okay? Look where it says in verse 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That in itself is a line from Psalm 118, which is a psalm of ascent. Now, here's what's interesting about that. The word Hosanna just simply means salvation is here, salvation is coming. Um, we're crying out for salvation. And the stanza would in turn answer that cry. So Lord, help us. And then it would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what's interesting about all this is that this was a psalm that was typically sung on the way to Jerusalem. But in this passage, they are singing it within the city walls. Okay, do you understand the import? Do you understand 
the impact, and the fact that the crowd adds this phrase, even the king of Israel, that is not, by the way, in the original Psalm 118. Matthew tells us they called him the son of David. Guys, John is painting as crystal clear picture as he can. These people are ready to make him king. This was their Messiah. This was their strong man. This is the one who's come to make everything right. And, and, and if you had to put some, some subtitles on this, on this scene, it would be something like this. If someone has the power, excuse me, I just spilled my water, so that, this is a sign that I need to drink it, and so I won't spill it anymore. The subtitles is very clear. If someone has the power to raise a dead man from the grave, surely he has the power to throw down Roman rule with a word. That's what they were hoping and expecting. Now let me ask you a question, Christian. Or if you're not a Christian, you've just kind of come in here and you're wondering what all this is about. What are you hoping and expecting God does in your life this season? What is that thing? For the Israelites, it was, it was very clear what that thing was. We want freedom. We want the boot lifted off of our neck. We want things to be made right. We want the Romans to put down. What is that thing in your life? What is that thing? You're like, if I could wave a magic wand, so to speak, this thing would be gone. This relationship would be resolved. This, this thing would be healed. This body that's broken would be fixed in this way. What is that thing for you? What is that thing? What is the thing that captures your heart and your mind and your soul and your thoughts and your energy? Keep it in your mind. Let's look at the second point, the why. The why. Why such a tragic ending, so to speak, to something that had such an auspicious, hopeful beginning? As there was a, there's a family in this church who shall remain nameless in order for me to hide their guilt, okay? And, and this family re- refused, and I think very selfishly, to take their mom with them to see the new Star Wars movie, okay? Because they were, cons- now you may say, no, why, would they, why would they do something so mean, okay? Were they like concerned that mom would be traumatized, okay? And seeing the brooding, spoiled son kill his own father, were they concerned for mom, okay? No, not concerned at all, okay? They were concerned that mom would talk her way through the whole movie, Okay? They were, they were concerned that mom would do nothing but sit there and ask questions because mom wasn't a Star Wars buff, okay? Mom was just kind of rolling right into the middle of this whole thing, doesn't know what's happening, doesn't know the context, okay? Does that sound familiar for anyone? Okay. Now, if you know nothing else about Jesus other than this story, and you were to flip over to John chapter 19 you would probably wonder, what in the world happened? What in the world happened to to take Jesus from this triumphal entry where he is a strong man, having Jerusalem at his fingertips, people ready to make him king, where only six, five days later, he would be a disgraced, 
crucified common criminal? How does the triumphal procession turn into a funeral dirge? Now, to answer that question, as we have to remember that the disciples, the crowds, the Jews had tried countless times before to do this very thing. They had tried multiple times to make Jesus king. Remember the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, let us build you a tabernacle up here so we never have to go down from this place again. He just said, nope. Remember when he fed the 5,000 earlier in John chapter 6, and when he did this miracle, and, and, and it was not lost upon the people, they realized this was a... This was the same thing that Moses had done in the wilderness in feeding the Israelites there. What did they attempt to do then? They wanted to make Jesus king. Jesus said, I don't want any part of it. We can remember the time early in Mark's gospel where Jesus is healing and proclaiming and teaching, and the people are so enamored with his ministry, they're pressing in on him. And he has to get in a boat to go to the other side of the lake because he refuses to let them Make him a king. But here, here, here he does. We have to ask why. Why now? Because from a human perspective, folks, it appears Jesus could not have picked a worse time to do this from a human perspective, right? Because the disciples had warned him. What did they say? Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you. Okay? The leaders want to kill you. So he gets there. Does Jesus keep his customary low profile? No, what does he do? He heals Lazarus. He comes in, and knowing that this would enrage the Jewish leaders, it tells us in the text that they were already plotting to kill him. They were jealous. They did not like his atten- the attention that he was bringing uh, to himself. He, they were afraid he was going to sub- sub- subvert their power. But Jesus does this miracle anyway. It tells us later in John he goes into the money temple I mean, to the temple and starts clearing out the money changers. He confronts the Pharisees and Sadducees publicly. Guys, it, it, it became such a thing that verse 19 tells us, says that the whole world seemed to be going after him. And the Pharisees all the while were planning to kill him. It does not appear that this was... I mean, it, it, you know what it seems like? It seems like if you didn't know better that Jesus actually wanted to die. Isn't that interesting? Seems like he actually spurred them on. You know, when, when I was little, my mom would read me, I know this is politically incorrect now, but forgive us, okay? She would read me the Uncle Remus stories, okay? I know I'm going to be pelted with something. Anyway, Uncle Remus stories, and there was, I remember, my favorite story was the, was the story of Br'er Rabbit, okay? And the fox was always trying to catch Br'er Rabbit, and what did the, what did, what did the fox want to do to, to Br'er Rabbit? Wanted to, wanted to cook him up and eat him, you know, that kind of thing. Doesn't sound like a, a gig you want to sign up for, but what did Br'er Rabbit tell him? He said, you can do anything to me, but don't what? Don't throw me in the briar patch, okay? Don't throw me in the briar patch. And he, he repeats it so often that 
In fact, he goads him into doing such a thing. It's almost like what Shakespeare says in Hamlet, the lady doth protest too much, methinks, right? Guys, this is no accident, okay? Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing that. Jesus knew that by him allowing them to recognize him publicly as king would set off a chain reaction of events that would ultimately lead to his death. Which was his plan all along. Now, these stories have become so rote and familiar to us, we have to stop and think about that just for a second. See, see oftentimes we have a misconception for Oaks that, that Passion Week was a good story gone bad. That things were so great, the, the crowds were so aligned with Jesus, they were ready to make him king. How in the world could the ecstasy of Palm Sunday evolve into the nightmare of Good Friday? And let me tell you, that lie, for Oaks, comes with a hiss. Because we are so, so tempted to do the very same things in our lives. Lord, I didn't think it was supposed to be like this. Lord, you were supposed to fix my health, my marriage, my job, and my kids, and that, none of that seems to be happening right now. To which Jesus' response, I think, is simply this. For folks, before he could decisively fix what's wrong out there or what's wrong in here, he had to fix what's wrong right there. See, we have a much greater problem than a corrupt political system or a struggling marriage or financial deficits or a, or a decaying body that betrays us. See, we have a much more fundamentally tragic problem, and it lies right here that our hearts are corrupt. And this is not politically correct to say this. We are born steeped in sin. Every inclination of our hearts, apart from Christ, is to do wrong. Now, in, in a affluent culture, we can dress that up and make it look a lot of different ways. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, we want Jesus to fix everything that's wrong out here that impacts us when he says, you know, no, no, I've got a higher priority for you. I want to fix what's going on right here. And in order for me to do that, I've got to die. And so, yes, I'll let him make me king. Because this is going to unleash a set of events that dark, yes, tragic, yes, but ultimately good. Because only by the conquering king coming to die for Oaks could you and I have life. That is the gospel. It's confounding to the world. It doesn't make sense. And as, even as Christians, it's hard to wrap our heart and our eyes and our minds around. And Jesus wants to speak right into that place. So just for the last 
few minutes together. What does this look like as we let this seep down into our hearts? How does this apply? Some quick takeaways. Because when we got home, right before we left to come back home yesterday from the beach, um, we'd been pretty unplugged electronically, okay? And that's always a little discombobulating when you don't kind of know what's going on in the world out there. If you ever had this experience, like, you know, you've got 7,900 emails, okay, and that sort of thing. So I'm looking through email threads, and I, one just popped up, and I'm like, oh, and it's, just, it's about the story of a, of a pastor in South Florida who had resigned his pulpit a year or two ago over marital difficulties, and he and his wife had had um, indiscretions, and their marriage was not salvageable, and um, apparently he had gone through a very public repentance process and was, was walking in faith and had gone on staff with another church. Um, and, and the elders and pastors, they felt, felt like he was on such the right track only for it to be disclosed it was all a lie. It was all a sham. There was so much going on that no one even knew about it. And as I was talking to one of you who's over at the beach with us, just had to ask, you know, why does that happen? I've got to ask that question, don't we? Why does that happen? Why do self-professing Christians fall away? Why do people walk away from the Lord? Why do people's hearts grow hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? And Larry Crabb had this to say once, many years ago, about a fallen pastor who he ministered with and alongside in ministry. And he said, this particular person fell into the age-old deception, the deception from the serpent, that God is to be worshipped based upon the good gifts that he gives us. See, see what he's saying? When things are good, I worship God. When things are bad, I become disillusioned and hardened and I turn away. So, you know, it's, it's so easy, folks, to, to fall into that kind of warped theology to think that Jesus' most important agenda in your life and my life is fixing all the things that negatively impact us, and he's got a far higher agenda. He wants to work in your heart. He wants to do a work of grace. He wants his word and his spirit to transform our corrupt, worldly, fleshly selves into his image. And oftentimes, most of the time, I don't know about you, those typically don't happen in seasons of plenty, do they? No, no. They happen in seasons of need. They happen in seasons where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we desperately need the grace of Jesus Christ. Because the same thing with the Jews. They, their dream was that this Messiah would ride in on a great war horse, a steed. But instead, look at the text. What does Jesus ride in on to this spectacle? He rides, it says, verse 14, on a young 
donkey, a colt. Guys, it's, 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 it's laughable. A king on a colt? John tells us it's a a fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah 9.9, but there's something else going on here. It's a foreshadowing, is it not? That a colt is an animal of peace. And Jesus is forecasting that he is going to be a different kind of king. He is a king that has come to die. And if we forget that, if we forget that no servant is greater than his master, if we forget that in this world we will have trouble, if we forget that our road, just like our master's road, is marked with suffering, then we will make catastrophic spiritual mistakes in our lives. And what we need is what the disciples need, needed, which is the heart of faith in ICC. Look in verse 16. It says, His disciples did not understand these things at first. See, they were just like us. Jesus, what are you doing? But it says, but when Jesus was glorified, it means when he died and was raised from the grave and ascended into heaven, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. See, only later did they understand that my greatest need is not that Jesus rides in on a steed and saves the day and delivers us from political oppression or comes in and fixes whatever ills in our life. But Jesus is our strong man, Four Oaks, in an entirely different way. He didn't come to set up a throne. He came to set up a cross. And that, my friends, is the gospel, that Jesus is the king who came to die. Which means now, we don't despair. We do not lose heart. Outwardly, we are wasting away. And we can see that, right, in our bodies. We can see it in our world. We can see it in our political system. But what does Paul tell us? Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. That's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week, because you and I need to be reminded that the conquering king, and make no mistake, he will return. In Revelation 19 tells us the next time it will be on a war horse, it will be on a steed, he will make everything right. But for now, we wait in hope. We wait in patience. We wait, let's be honest, in suffering and pain. And that's what this table is about. I ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve our table this morning. And as they do, let me ask you to do something. To go before the Lord and to ask him, where in your life do you need to see again more clearly with eyes of faith? Where has disillusionment, cynicism, anger, fear gripped your hearts leading you to to walk in unbelief and doubt about God's good purposes in your life? Where, Where do you need the gospel, the corrective lenses of the gospel, to give you hope in what God is doing? Not just out there, but in here.